I don't know, do people still read Reader's Digest anymore? I think you can get an app for your phone. <clears throat> but uh, I was in the doctor's office this week, and a writer, her name is uh, Janie, she wrote a story about she was working in a grocery store. And every day this woman would come to the grocery store and just buy a few items. And then she would leave, and then she'd come back the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And this went on for months. So one day, the writer in the story, Janie, approached the older woman and said, um, excuse me, I'm just curious, why don't you buy enough for maybe two or three days? Why do you come every day? And the woman paused and looked her in the eye and said, you see, I live with my nephew, and I can't stand him. And I'm not going to die and leave him a full refrigerator. <laughs> so that's a great attitude, wouldn't you say? Well, I got another story I want to show you. And guys, if you could cue up that first video, I think you'll get the gist of where I'm going today. these stories um, talk about and have in common is that they involve vengeance, getting mad or getting even, something that's as natural as breathing for the human race. Our natural reaction when something is said abusive to us or someone strikes against us is to retaliate. You know the saying, I don't get mad, but I do get even. Now, that's a proud slogan for some people. It's just human nature that if you're cursed, you curse back. If you're insulted, you insult in return. If you're struck on the cheek, you strike back. And we get into that cycle of vengeance. Retaliation is always hard to identify because oftentimes it hides itself in self-justice. I have the right to retaliate, we tell ourselves. 
I'm just giving them a little dose of what they've given me. Or I am just helping them to feel a little bit of the way I felt when they did that to me, when they hurt me. Have you ever been hurt so badly by someone, but you fought that urge to retaliate? Well, if you have, you've walked down the path of David, the soon-to-be king of Israel, whose life we've been studying the last couple weeks. And if there were ever a case that could be made for taking vengeance, it's in the passage that we read this morning in 1 Samuel 24. Last week when Mike preached, we left David in a cave and he was chased by Saul. He was discouraged, defeated, and pouring out his heart, as Mike told us, in song. He had lost all his worldly possessions. He was desperate. He was crying out to God in prayer. And it wasn't long before God brought him some companionship. 1 Samuel 22 tells us that when his brothers and sisters and father and his household heard of it, they went down to him. And soon others joined. The next verse records that everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him and he became their captain. Now there were 400 men with him. David was able to discipline this ragtag group of mitzvahs into a small army that would later, we'll, we'll read, was David's mighty men. But David left the cave that they were in because he got word from the prophet Gad that there was no longer a safe place for him. And him and his men hid in the forest in Judah. Saul continued to pursue David. He sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. David had little rest from pursuit of Saul. Day by day, he was on the run. Now, it's important for us to remember that David did nothing to deserve this trouble. And by now, he had quite his full of Saul's insane jealousy. If vengeance was on his mind, if that's what he wanted, this was his chance in the cave. In 1 Samuel 24, we, we read that Saul goes into the cave to relieve himself. And who would happen to be in the back of the cave but David and his men? Here's your chance to kill Saul, David, his men would say. Here's the opportunity. This is what God's way of providing you a chance to move into the position that he promised you. Go get him, David. This is your moment. And who would have blamed David? Who would have blamed him if he had taken that sword and plunged it in the back of Saul for all that Saul had done to him? The way Saul had destroyed David's life because of his own jealousy, David did draw his sword, but he didn't plunge it into Saul's back. He sliced off a portion of Saul's robe and then returned to his place in the cave. Saul didn't detect a thing. But after he did that, David felt guilty. Verse 5 and 6 tells us. He couldn't believe that he had allowed himself to do what he had done. Now you might say, oh, come on, David, this is the man who for months and months has tried to kill you. And you're feeling guilty for cutting off the tail of his robe? I think David felt guilty for two reasons. The first is that he had tremendous respect for the office of king, even if he didn't have so much respect for Saul himself. No matter how low Saul stooped, he was still the king of Israel and should be respected. To cut off the corner of his robe was a blatant act of disrespect to the office of king. But secondly, and I think more importantly, he knew what he had done. He did in anger. 
and out of bitterness. And afterwards, the scripture says, it disturbed him that he would allow his anger and bitterness to gain control over him, even for a moment. David had such a desire to honor and follow God with his life that he felt remorse because he had allowed sin to lead him to do something that he knew was not right. So what can we learn from the word of God? What can help us when we're so angry at someone and we want to seek revenge? How do we deal with the person who manipulates a situation at work to make himself look good at our expense? Or how do we deal with the family member who says really hurtful and untrue things about us? Or maybe the friend who borrowed money from us and promised to pay you back and you've never seen them again. Or maybe the person who in their own anger strikes you and causes you physical harm. Or maybe the spouse who walked out on you, leaving you alone to deal with the kids. What do we do when our parents have verbally, emotionally, or physically abused us? First, I'd like to look at three ways I think the world deals with this. And then I'd like to look at three ways I think the Bible tells us to deal with these things. There are three common ways the world tells us to retaliate. The first is through physical violence. Physical violence is at an epidemic rate in our world today. How many of us are quick to want to put up our fists when we get into a disagreement with someone? I don't know if you've seen it recently, but there was a video that went, went viral of two women fighting it out in Walmart. But it's not just located to Walmart, it's worldwide, from car bombs in Israel to throwing rocks in Indonesia to gun battles in Chechnya. Violence is all around us. What about school reports or maybe the school shootings that we have in our own country? Well, what about road rage? People are getting into fights and in some cases pulling weapons out because someone cut them off in traffic. It's an epidemic rate in our country and our world to use physical violence to retaliate when someone hurts us. The second way we often retaliate is through verbal assault. James, the brother of Jesus, in chapter 3, verse 10, says, A large forest can be set on fire by a little flame. The tongue is that kind of flame. People have tamed all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures, he goes on to say. Yet no one can tame the tongue. It is uncontrollable, evil, filled with deadly poison. Praise comes from our mouth. And we praise the Lord, yet the same tongue curses people who are created in God's likeness. We know how dangerous the tongue can be, and we like to use it dangerously. Someone has done something to take, uh, that we take offense to, and a dam breaks in us, and a barrage of hurtful, stinging words come out of us that cannot be taken back. Talk to any marriage counselor, and he'll tell you that verbal abuse is also at an epidemic rate. We can be mean and nasty with our words. The third worldly way I think we retaliate when someone hurts us is also some, sometimes the Christian ease way, and that's by giving people the cold shoulder. As Christians, we know we shouldn't assault someone physically or verbally, no matter what they have done. So instead, we retaliate and seek revenge by using the cold shoulder. We ignore the person, we avoid the person, we don't include that person, 
and do whatever we pretty much can do to let that person know that we're mad. I like the story of the basketball referee, that he was refing a JV basketball game, and a new player checked into the game, and instead of guarding the opposition, he began to guard the referee. And everywhere the referee went, this player went with him, even when his team was on offense. Finally, the referee doesn't know what's going on. He calls timeout, goes up to the coach and says, do you see what's happening? Your player is guarding me. And the coach, kind of with a sly smirk on his face, says, yeah, yeah, I think he gets our ethos here that I've always taught them, whoever hurts the team most, you should be guarding. (laughs) You see, we, we figure out who has hurt us the most, and then we give that person the cold shoulder. So how do we handle the person who has hurt us? I'd like like us to consider three biblical principles. The first is that we should expect to be mistreated. You see, the same nature that beats in the heart of Saul beats in the heart of every person. People will mistreat us. They will hurt us. They will cause us deep pain. They will anger us, and they will evoke emotions within us that we never thought ourselves capable of. But God's word in Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, as much as it is possible, live in peace with everyone. We might as well face the facts that we're not going to get along with everybody. I know many Christian friends who are crushed because not everybody likes them. And they bend over backwards and they compromise their position. They lose their self-respect just to try to bring about harmony. Be realistic. Some conflicts are inevitable, and we shouldn't be afraid of them. Even Jesus wasn't loved by everyone. He had enemies, and they crucified him. Just make sure, as a warning, that you're not the one responsible for the conflict. Don't deliberately be controversial. Don't deliberately antagonize people. If you have to, swallow your pride and be willing to humble yourself to keep peace. The second is that we have to anticipate that feeling of retaliation. Helps if you don't lose your place. I'm not saying to retaliate, but I'm saying anticipate those feelings of revenge because you know they're going to come. Handling mistreatment in a godly way does not come naturally. That's why Jesus' instructions to do unto others as you would have them do to you, not as they do to you. So let me repeat that. To do unto others as you would have them do unto you, not as they do to you. That is revolutionary. Rare is the person who will not retaliate. When someone hurts you or does something that you determine is wrong, the natural feeling is to want to get even. Our human nature is crying out for retaliation and revenge. Uh, I had a friend and he often quoted, he said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord and I just want to be about the Lord's business. Well, I think he had it backwards. You see, um, we need to know for sure how we're going to deal with that desire to retaliate even 
when those feelings are there. But a a mature and spirit-led Christian does not act on those feelings. They act on what they know is right. And then thirdly, we need to refuse to fight in the flesh. David's men said, go get him, David. He deserves it. This is your moment. I think it took all of David's integrity to spiritual and spiritual maturity to not plunge his sword deep into Saul. But David would not give in to those strong feelings that made him want to retaliate. David was spirit-led, so he refused to fight mistreatment with retaliation and revenge. Romans 12, 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. You see, our instincts tell us to curse, but God says bless. Now that's hard, but it is possible. When Jesus was crucified, he prayed, Father, forgive them, my enemies, for they know not what they are doing. I challenge you today to take the name of a person that might come to mind and begin to pray for that person that might be difficult for you to love. Pray every day for that person. It's really hard to hate someone when you're praying for them. After Saul left the cave and went away, David also went out to the cave and he calls out to Saul and he says, Saul, let's make up, let's be friends. I think David had had enough of being on the run as a fugitive and decided to go out and talk to Saul. If Saul was going to kill him, so be it. But he was going to end this thing once and for all. Sometimes we have to do that. I think one of the best ways for us to deal with people who have hurt us or in our opinion have done something wrong is to go talk to them first. You may not convince them that they are wrong, but you can sure make sure that they understand the facts. You see, our tendency is to say, oh, just leave it alone. It'll eventually all work out. But David didn't leave it alone. He said, King Saul, you don't know all the facts. I'm not trying to kill you. I'm not trying to take over your position. People are telling you lies about me. Why do you listen to them? Let me prove it. If I was going to kill you, I had the opportunity. And he holds up the robe, the corner that he had cut. Jesus instructed us in Matthew 18, verse 15. He says, if someone, if a person does something wrong, go and confront him when the two of you are alone. If he listens to you, you have won back that believer. Instead, we go around and we tell everyone else what a lowlife that person is or the nerve of that person that they could do this to me. But we need to go to the person directly. One of the great testimonies in the last few weeks, if you're familiar with what's happened in Charleston, South Carolina, I'd like the guys to show a video, but um, this is Dylan Roof, the, the man who killed those people in the prayer meeting. Would you like to make meeting. a statement in regards to this hearing concerning Ethel Lance as a victim, ma'am? Yes. Would you like to come forward, please? You are representing the family of Ethel Lance, is that correct? And you are whom, ma'am? The daughter. The daughter. I'm listening. And you can talk to me. I just want everybody to know. To you, I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. 
I would never talk to her ever again. I would never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. And have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. But God forgive you. And I forgive you. Thank you, ma'am. And I appreciate you being here. Representative of the family of Myra Thompson. Sir, would you like to make a statement before this court? Please come forward. Your name, sir? Anthony Thompson. Mr. Thompson. I would just like him to know that... Speak up for me. I can down here. Saying the same thing that was just said. You know, I forgive you and my family forgive you. But we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent. Confess. Give your life to the one who matters the most. Christ. So that he can change it. And change your ways no matter what happened to you. And you'll be okay. Do that. Now that video goes on for another 10 minutes with other family members addressing the court and forgiving Dylan Roof. That is what our scripture is talking about today. A revolutionary way of responding to people who have hurt us. But in addition, in addition to David, there's another person left vengeance where it needs to be left. It's left in the hands of God, and that person was Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to read it. It says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you would follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was sinless, completely pure, and a totally innocent man. Yet he was insulted, beaten, abused, and put to death in an inhumane fashion. He once taught, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him and give him the other cheek. Peter says that that's exactly what Jesus did. When Jesus was mistreated, he left retaliation and revenge in the hands of God. Why would the mighty Son of God allow himself to be subject to such mistreatment without an ounce of retaliation or revenge? Peter goes on and says, For he himself bore our sins on the body, on his body on that tree, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Jesus allowed himself to be mistreated and abused without retaliating or seeking revenge because and for you and I. He did not retaliate or make threats when he was insulted, abused, because he knew he had to die. In his death, he was punished by God for our sins. He committed no sin, but he was punished for the sins of mankind. He died so our slate could be wiped clean. Because of this, 
we can have salvation. 1 John chapter 2 says, He is the payment for our sin, and not only for our sin, but also for the sins of the whole world. To pay for our sins, that is why Jesus did not retaliate. The wonderful message of the gospel is that Jesus willingly went to the cross without retaliating the injustices done for him or to him. Our sins have been punished, and now we can stand before God white as snow. God is offering us an eternity in heaven with him. But each individual needs to make a decision to accept this gift or not. And that is accepted through faith and repentance in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the testimony of the church in Charleston and their witness to the world that they did not retaliate. Father, I pray that if a person has come to someone's mind um, that is difficult to love, you would help them to love that person. And Father, I pray that the witness of the church would continue to expand and that the, the unlovable would know that they are loved by you. I pray all this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.